This is Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, Kodo listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this first Off the Record of 2022. As we are still kind of in this this transitory phase from one year to another, we just passed the solstice, this time of of transitioning, of reflecting, um, we thought it would be good to do a different sort of show, a show focused on what we are going to put around the theme of sacred texts. So often in life when we have challenges, transitions, just just things that are out of the ordinary, I find that a lot of people tend to turn to texts in, in one form or another for guidance, whether it's a song, a poem, a book, a piece of scripture. There's something about words that gives us life when we need it. So tonight we are going to be exploring a variety of different sacred texts and the role they play in many people's lives. Give us a call. It's off the record. So if you have a sacred text you want to share, 970-728-4333. Again, that's 970-728-4333. If you want to share something about a text that you turn to in hard times. We're kicking off the hour, though, with the one of, not the, but one of the original sacred texts, the Bible. And here to talk to us about the Bible, we have Reverend Dr. Pat Bailey, the pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church. Pat, thanks for being here. Thanks for the invitation, uh, Matt. Appreciate it. Starting off with the basic question, how did you become a pastor, Pat? Um, it was a huge mistake in my life, and <laughs> uh, I just, you know, <laughs> wasn't very good at anything else. No. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I had an experience uh, as a young adult. Um, I was actually overseas. I was living in Spain. Um, that really helped me kind of pull my life together. And part of what followed from that was a sense of, yeah, I could, you know, be a minister. I could, you know, be a pastor in this. Um, A long road after that of really preparation and change, thank God, Mm -hmm. Um, and reevaluating a lot of what um, my experience had been and what it meant to me. Um, So, yeah, it's been a long long process, but I've never... uh, Never regretted the uh, the choice for for my uh, sense of call. Mm. Well, we have you on as our local, one of our local biblical experts to talk <laughs> about the Bible as a <laughs> sacred text. How do you think of the Bible as a sacred text? I, uh, you know, I've 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 done a lot of educational stuff. <laughs> thank God. So I have a historical view. I have a critical view. I don't just accept it as this thing that fell out of the sky and suddenly is the Word of God in terms of a literal sense of that, but there's a whole historical um, reality to the progression, the development of the Hebrew Scriptures and the development of the Christian Scriptures. So I have to read that to some degree objectively and read that critically and take the best uh, history and the best criticism that I can get or the best scholarship that I can get um, when I read uh, Scripture. So I don't read Scripture simply as um, here is, uh, you know, God's truth forever and for all time. And at the same time, I talked about that objective aspect of it, but there is a true subjective aspect of it that 
there are times in our lives when it can truly speak to us and it can be word of God, you know, for us mm-hmm. uh, in our particular experiences. Well, if the Bible isn't that literal word of God, mm-hmm. as you're saying, yep. what is the value in it then? Why, why should it be something we turn to if it is not from literally from the divine? Um, just like we turn to great other uh, scriptures, we turn to great poetry, we turn to great rock and roll, we turn to great... <laughs> there's, there's something in the human spirit that takes in um, truth that speaks more deeply to us. And I think that that's what uh, the Bible can uh, certainly do. Um, but, it, you know, it, it is an internal kind of uh, interrelationship with us in creation, not just this external word spoken from some heaven that we must obey and we must uh you know acknowledge and we must believe when we do that to scripture when we do that to the bible it destroys the bible when we open ourselves to the deeper uh, aspects of scripture and how it speaks to us as human beings in historical situated reality, I think it can speak very, very deeply. Well, do you have an example of, of an instance in your life where tapping into that deeper meaning helped you navigate a challenging time? Um, yeah, I think a, a part of it is, um, you know, there's so much there that kind of uh, displays the human situation and takes us through the process of trying to live in the realities of life and death, of suffering and joy, of love and hostility. Um, there's so those story. I mean, it's all story. It's mostly story that help us that, that, that give us stories that perhaps we can identify with, and perhaps we can find ourselves in those same kind of situations and and identify with those persons in there in ways that allow us to uh, to carry on. Uh, a lot of my, you know, my uh, ministry has been in um, with the Army, and, and I was, uh, you know, deployed to Iraq and saw a lot of death and uh, did a lot of work with people dealing with that kind of stuff. And I think those stories, you know, the especially the Hebrew scriptures, well, the Christian ones too, um, man, they are raw <laughs> in terms of what people are really dealing with and their failures, and their, you know, foibles, and their sorrow, and, and those are the stories, those are stories of life. They're not stories of some, you know, some, um, you know, God who is not empathetic and who does not understand our own, uh, our own suffering. In your time as an army chaplain, because I really, I can only imagine that being in the middle of a war is one of the most intense experiences possible. As, as a human, one of. Um, how did the Bible help you and, and those you were a chaplain for navigate such intense situations? Well, you know, you got to meet people where they're at. And you, you don't start with quoting the Bible, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I had a chaplain, one of, I was supervised six chaplains as well, and one of them was always, you know, thumping the Bible and always demanding that soldiers understand, you know, the God of the Bible and all that kind of stuff, not understanding that these soldiers and these people were coming from different kind of backgrounds and different kind of situations. So it wasn't, the Bible for me wasn't uh, something that I deployed to, to gain some kind of purpose that I was trying to do, but it was my own solace. 
And what I, the services that I did in Iraq was a, was more contemplative services, which are services that try to embrace the mystery and try to be present to what is real and what is actually happening rather than trying to give them answers to the, you know, these simple, quick answers. You know, we all got to go to heaven and all that kind of stuff uh, to, to those things. So um, I had a community there. The, the chapel community that I did was uh, more of a, that kind of contemplative uh, community and trying to help people uh, uh, ask the questions, mm. you know, reach beyond their own despair or their own uh, horror and ask the questions about who they are and what does life mean and how can I you know, find solace in this kind of situations rather than trying to give them the answers. I don't think the Bible offers us answers. I think the Bible actually invites us to a deeper experience of the realities that we're experiencing. You mentioned earlier that, that on your journey to becoming a chaplain, you said, thankfully, you went through a lot of changes. Yeah. Well, over the last few decades, being, being a pastor, how is your relationship um, with the Bible, with the questions, you seek from it. How has that changed over the last several decades for you? Well, I, you know, I, I, in my early faith as a young adult, actually, my understanding was very simplistic. Um, it was very literal. Um, I was part of a very conservative kind of community at that time. Um, but I've been graced to be able to go to school and have uh, mentors that have helped me with that. So when I was in college, I minored. I, I, I did a uh, bachelor's in religious education. I minored in biblical Greek, so I'm very fluent in Greek, and I use it every week. Um, and also then went to seminary and learned Hebrew as well, and also learned the history of biblical interpretation and theological thought and development. <laughs> you know, some people think it's just one thing, that it just... You know, what Christians have always believed, you know, they, this conservative kind of view of Christianity is what people have always believed, and it's not. It's always been a conversation, and it's always been very dynamic. Um, so for me, the thing that I'm really thankful for is the opportunity to do that, because what that does for me is two things. One, it allows me to read, I think, our own scripture on a much deeper level than I ever had read before. It's, it's so, I think there's so much treasure there um, you know, when we read it on a, both an objective level and a mystical level, the mystical is very important. Well, what the second thing that did for me is open me up to other scriptures mm -hmm. to read, um, um, Islamic, uh, not only scriptures, but the history and the great mystics of Islam to read the early Taoist and Buddhist, uh, poetry of China to read, you know, all the Tao Te Ching, the, all the different kind of things that, ha and, and Native American, uh, uh, you know, witnesses as well, that opened, that allowed me to do that. If I had been, you know, just Bible thumping and just, this is the way it, you got to read it and, it, and it's, it's the only truth that has ever been spoken in the human condition, then I'd be lost. I think, you know, I, I appreciate being able to read this, to, to hold dearly my own, the own scripture of my own tradition and the Hebrew tradition, and at the same time recognize where some of the connections are and how the other traditions and their scripture speak volumes and, and into our, my own tradition. I, I haven't become one of those other 
traditions because my tradition is rich, but mm. they have enriched me by reading their traditions. What are some of those connections you've observed being so entrenched in, in comparative religion? What are some of the connections you've seen that just seem to stretch across human spiritual experience? Um, well, you know, one of the things that, that when you study world religions is that you've got to take each one at their own value. There are certain crossovers and certain things that people are talking to, um, but you can't go too far with that because you've got to take each one in their, at their own, at their own, in their own voice. You know, you can't take that voice away from them. Mm. Um, at the same time, you certainly recognize a common uh, ground. I mean, there's, there's a whole broad spectrum of things that are shared, especially in the spiritual aspect, not the kind of metaphysical we're trying to make, you know, we're trying to explain things metaphysically, and we're never going to make a lot of progress <laughs> doing that. But when you go deeper than that into the spiritual aspect of it and how people practice their sense of presence of something more, when you talk about how people live their lives in relationships to other in their community, so much uh, commonality, um, and we have so much to learn uh, you know, from one another. So that's that's where it, it, it really happens, I think. Mm. We only have a few minutes left. Yeah. The segments always go way too fast. But <laughs> I imagine we might have some listeners hearing this who, who maybe are inspired to revisit whatever their beliefs, sacred text may be, whatever it is. Um, and is there any advice you can give them for someone who maybe is intimidated by some of these dense historic religious texts? But if someone wants to open... A Bible or a Quran or whatever they want to open, um, a way to, to make those texts more accessible for someone who maybe is inspired to dive in? Well, I, I hate to not inspire you, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Because what happens is we bring, a lot of us grew up, I mean, I grew up in the South, so we grew up with all these kind of things about Christianity and about the Bible that's it's so instilled in our mind that we can't get past them. Um, they they keep they're, they're like parents that keep you know speaking into our existence what i would say is the central theme is love if you stick with the central theme of love if you believe that what what's be, trying to be expressed there even in the, the even in some horrible texts there really are some bad ones there but what is central is love and how we are invited to express that love in the world we we can incarnate that love in our existence. That's kind of the Christian symbol. Um, that if we're invite, if we know that we're invited to do that, then all the other condemnation and hell and rules and all the other stuff doesn't really matter. And, but we got to keep that in front of us, the love of God, the love of, of our reality. Pat Bailey, the pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church. Pat, thanks so much for, for coming in and, and being our resident Bible expert for this 15 ah! minutes. I, I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate the invitation. <laughs> Listeners, stay tuned. We've got some more conversations about sacred texts coming up. This is KOTO Telluride.
And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Off the Record. I'm Matt Hoysh from the Kodo News Team. Tonight on the show, we are having an hour about sacred texts and interpreting that very broadly, whether it's scripture, poetry, music, something in between, a book, mm-hmm. um, texts that we turn to in hard times that give us life. Um, had a post on social media earlier today asking for, for folks to, to give any sacred texts they want. And, and one of our locals, Axel Koch, um, commented a John Weir quote under that uh, post for a sacred text. And the quote is, the sun shines not on us, but in us. The river flows not past, but through us. Thrilling, tingling, vibrating every fiber and cell of the substance of our bodies, making them glide and sing. The trees wave and the flowers bloom in our bodies, as well as our souls. And every bird song, wind song, and tremendous storm song of the rocks in the heart of the mountains is our song, our very own, and sings our love. It's a John Weir quote from Axel Koch, who commented that that is a sacred text of his. So thanks, Axel. Listeners, if you have a sacred text you want to share, give us a call, 970-728-4333. Like I said, a song, a poem, anything um, that you turn to in tough times. 970-728-4333. We started with the Bible. We are turning now to poetry with one of our local poets, Rosemary Latola Tromer. Rosemary, thanks for joining us. Hey there, Matt. Starting off with poetry, I have to ask, how did you become a poet? How did you get into poetry? Oh, well, I loved it. I loved it since I was a little girl, and it was playful and fun. It began as play for me, and to this day, that's why I continue to write. Every day is that there's joy, real joy in it. Even when I'm writing about the most difficult things, um, there is a, hmm, you know this pleasure in finding the words to meet the moment and in that moment of as as pat bailey was saying before this this contemplation right this willingness to be in conversation with the whole world Mm. you have as you mentioned this daily poetry practice you you actually have a a poetry blog a hundred falling veils.com where you you post a, a daily poem that you write what does that daily practice do for you? Not only being a poet, but every day sitting down to, to put something on paper. Mm, well, it, <laughs> it began as a challenge just for 30 days. And I thought, oh, I could never do that. And then, and then I couldn't stop because what I noticed was that writing a poem every day does a few things. One is it allowed me to relax enough to not think I needed to write something perfect every day. In fact, it changed everything about the way I wrote. You know, I think in the beginning I wanted to write something good. But if you're writing a poem every day, you can't write something good every day. Like, you really just, you can't. You can't write a masterpiece every day. But you can write something true every single time. So when I sat down, and instead of wanting to write something good, if I knew all I had to do was write the next true thing... Mm that became how I met a blank page. And what I realized is that the way I meet a blank page has everything to do with the way I meet the rest of the world. You know, this practice of showing up, of being curious, of, of, finding, um, of finding a voice, of listening to the world, that changes how I engage with you. Right? That, in- that changes how I engage with my family, my children, the community, how I relate to whatever my idea of God is, which I don't even know what that is, but I'm, I'm willing to be in that conversation. 
do you have an example of one of those changes of, of a way that that being so engaged in poetry has changed your day-to-day life and the way you approach the world oh well this is so i used to it, there was a time there where i would you know actually be on the lookout all day long and be like where's the poem where's the poem where's the poem then over time and by that i mean 10 12 years I stopped looking for it everywhere and realized that I could just trust that when I would mm-hmm. sit down, something would happen. And I've realized that that trust is, um, is also what I'm able to meet, like any interaction with that. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, Pat Bailey is back. Pat, and we're, Pat is searching for his glasses. The lenses. Oh, oh gosh. gosh. There's two. There's two. There's another one? Oh, Oh, we're looking for a second pair of lenses. And Rosemary (laughs) found the second pair. (laughs) Don't follow the blind or you will both fall into a group. Final words from the pastor. Blind leading the blind. Okay. (laughs) Well, amen to that. (laughs) Well, Um, I guess by, you know, um, and here's a a very real example, friend, is... um, you know the, and I think most of the people in town know that in August, my son took his life. And I think in part because I had 15 years of a daily practice of meeting the world as it is, right? Of showing up and wondering what is the next true thing. On that day and every day since then, instead of turning away from what happened, I really feel like the poetry practice has allowed me to turn toward what happened and meet it, meet it in, in the most vulnerable, heart-opened way possible. Mm. And I know that that's because of that poetry practice. Mm. Other things too, but that was certainly a large part of it, Matt. Yeah. Um, you chose a couple of poems that that have spoken to you that you consider in your way sacred texts. A couple by Rilke, Rainy Maria Rilke. Um, and I would love if you would share one of them. Yeah, you bet. Uh, this is You Darkness. The translator is Robert Bly. You darkness that I come from. I love you more than all the fires that fence in the world. For the fire makes a circle of light for everyone, but then no one outside learns of you, but the darkness pulls in everything. Shapes and fires, animals and myself. How easily it gathers them, powers and people. And it is possible A great energy is moving near me. I have faith in nights. Mm. Why is that a poem that stuck with you as, as a sacred text? I think that when I when I first met the poem, I had no idea what it was about, and it didn't speak to me much at all. But, but then I went through a, a very, very difficult period, uh, um, you know, a dark night of the soul, we like to say. And 
This is probably about 10, 10 years ago. And what struck me about this poem is that Rilke was deeply in love mm-hmm. with the night. And you darkness that I come from, I love you. He says, I love you more than all the fires. Now, I think that typically, in, in, in certainly in our tradition, in, in our Western tradition, we think, you know, light, good, dark, bad. You know, that's one of our weird binaries we've set up. So for Rilke to say this, you know, kind of triggered everything in me. Like, really? Darkness, I love you? And then I started feeling into that, really? Like, I, under, I started to understand what he was saying, that the darkness pulls in everything he says, that, that in this darkness, the, all the things that are in, in light, we're all super separated and distinguished, but the darkness is this great equalizer. It's this communion. It's this, this um, ability for us all to really be one, right? Mm. I fell so hard for this. Mm, possibility of oneness and and in fact it, it sparked a deep love affair with with nothing <laughs> with nothing um which sounds strange but <laughs> but, but truly that that is what happened um and and i think it was the 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 turning on its head of how do we perceive darkness and and then that changed everything for me right so that i thought okay if it's not if it's not like you know just light good dark bad you know we'd like to happy good pain sad you know pain bad well no what does pain have to teach us what 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 in us is possible if we turn toward the pain and say what do you have to teach me mm. and let that be as powerful of a of a guide as what we think makes us happy so it 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 was the beginning i think of this snowball effect of of being able to turn toward anything in the world the love affair with nothing turned into a love affair with everything, right? There's the mm-hmm. paradox, there's the sweetness of it. And, and so how to, how to turn to anything and say, I suppose, I love you. How could we, how could we turn to anything and like Rilke did and, and just say, you, that I've come from, I mm. love you. Oh, wow. Um, oh, I could talk about that poem for another 20 minutes i mean we could um, um <laughs> no I, I read letters to a young poet this past summer so so real kid was, was was on my mind a bit too yeah. um one of the other poems you chose was was an original poem that you wrote um shortly after finn your son's death and i was wondering if you'd want to share it well it's um just from about a week ago <clears throat> i'll try this one Um, This is called Looking at the Photo from 12 Years Ago. Tonight I stare at the photo of you and me and the cat and the wooden train tracks, and I can't stop marveling how your head angles so neatly into my shoulder, how my body angles so easily into yours, and I see how, even now, after you're gone, I am still angling toward you, my whole self somehow defined by the space where you've been. Today, someone asked if it was too hard to think of the happy moments. No, I love them. And I love, impossibly, the hardest of memories, too. It is so easy now to love 
be all of you. Remember how many times we built those wooden tracks and then pulled them apart, only to build them again? What isn't a teacher for love? Even then, we were learning about dead ends. Even then, we were learning how things circle, how things change. Mm. Why did you choose that poem? Mm. <laughs> that was a good question, Matt, because I really did go around <laughs> about this. I wanted to choose one that, that did talk about him. You know, a lot of the poems are talking about my experience, my grief experience. This one, I like that it, that it talks about something that we actually did. I mean, my God, how many years did we build train tracks? I mean, five, six, seven. <laughs> like, we, we did that for years and years and years. Uh, and, and I think what this poem does, too, it, it is that it, um, it does what we were just talking about, actually, in that Rilke poem, although I don't think I, I really understood that until I just read it out loud, was that it... It, you know, I said, what is not a teacher for love, actually? You know, like, that's very much, I think, what we were just talking about with Rilke. You, you darkness, I come from, I, I love you. Um, and, and for me, in that poem, you know, where I, what did I say? Um, that, that I love not only the happy memories, but the hardest memories, too. You know, I, you know, I think that somebody has said, you know, after Finn died, um, I, I'm just going to remember the good times. And I said, oh, not me. You know, I am going to remember it all. I'm going to remember it all. Because all of it, including this most difficult chapter of, of meeting his death, um, is, uh, is part of learning to love him, right? Is mm. part of what's changing me as a human being in, in a moment-to-moment way is the way that I um, continue to, to make that choice to love, to find out how I love him now, and mm. now that he's gone. Um, yeah, I think that's why. Yeah. Um, if someone's hearing this conversation and, um, and is inspired by the, the role that poetry has played in your life, helping you navigate, find the love in the world in different ways, um, but maybe is intimidated by poetry, maybe you know, I don't know, saw an E.E. E. Cummings poem and got really confused. Um, <laughs> is, is there a poet or a collection of poetry maybe you would recommend for folks who, who want an inroad into this as, as a way to start to love it as much as you do? Absolutely. I have so many. And if you are interested, you can write to me and I will send you a bibliography with all of my favorites. But uh, let me say that one of my favorite books out right now in, in the world is called Poetry of Presence. Um, the editors are... Um, Oh, Phyllis Cole Dye and Ruby, I'm spacing her last name, but you'll find it, Poetry of Presence. That has a beautiful white bird on the cover. And uh, it's, a, it's a collection of mostly contemporary American poets, although there are a few others in there too. And, uh, and the poems, I would say, are 98% uh, accessible on the first reading. Mm-hmm then you can read them again and again and continue to get something else from them. But, but none of these poems will make you feel stupid. You know, I think they will all make you think, oh, oh, that was a poem. Oh, I, like, I liked that. Um, I want to just honor that a lot of people were made to feel stupid with poetry. And I, I just, on behalf of all 
well-intentioned or just you know unhappy English teachers who did who did that to you I I, I apologize on behalf of poetry uh, welcome back <laughs> poetry isn't just for you know it's not just for grandmas anymore oh. um, Rosemary Wattola-Tromer a, a local poet extraordinaire uh, thank you so much Rosemary oh what a joy thank you so much for inviting me Matt Rosemary has a website, as I mentioned earlier, 100fallingveils.com, if you want to read more of her daily poems. I have to mention, that Rilke poem, you read it from memory. You just recited it. So, so listeners, just so you know, that, that first poem was, was purely by memory, which was, which was really beautiful. Um, all the poems are beautiful. Um, and one other thing, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number for anyone who wants it, needs it, 1-800-273-8255. Our next guest on this hour of sacred texts is Art Good Times. We actually did a pre-recorded interview with Art, so I will throw you back into the time machine to um, the recent past when I spoke with Art Good Times, and we'll see you on the other side. Here is Art speaking about his sacred text of choice. Art Good Times, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Um, Art, for those who don't know you, you are a, a former county commissioner, a local poet, a um, mushroom festival laureate, I dare say. You're really a man of many things and a bit of a local legend. Um, so glad that you could could make some time for this. And join us to talk about one of your sacred texts. Um, the text you chose, I'd never heard of it before you mentioned it. It is Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, Rapture of the Deep, Concerning Deep Ecology, and celebrating life by Dolores La Chapelle. Um, and before we get into to what this is and why you chose it, you have an excerpt from the text that I know you wanted to share. Yeah, I really did. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, um, I, I could. I'm going to talk about her, and I'm uh, not going to really quote her because it's her book is a huge, huge book. But I'll, I'll talk a lot about her. But I thought this description that was actually on Amazon, where if you want to look for this book, there are copies available. They're outrageously expensive, but. Uh, they're out of print, um, so you can get used ones. It is part ethnography, part autobiography, part philosophy, part manifesto, and part cookbook, or better, prayer book, a book of common prayer for the deep ecology movement and for persons who wish to live in harmony with the world while constructively engaging in its health and growth, a handbook for a new religion based on the oldest religion, extensively grounded in what real people have believed and practiced all over the world, not just the Judeo-Christian part of it, and throughout human history, not just since the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution. It's a text and a storybook that explains the factual and personal basis for the validity of deep ecology, bioethics, regional communities, and Taoist practices, and ties them to mountain climbing, powder skiing, sacred earth, and sacred sex a handbook to guide you in establishing personal rituals that will ground and enrich your life and your community. And, and I just love that because it says so well what that book meant to me because for me, it was my Bible. It was what changed my life. It was what's directed all my projects since then. And uh, we can go into some of that, but um, it took me six years to read the book. Um, it's about a third... Um, uh, notes and the notes are absolutely as important as the text, um, and it's uh, it's funky, idiosyncratic. She was an independent scholar. She got 
my favorite poet's name wrong. She got a lot of things <laughs> that aren't exactly right. Nobody edited this book. She spent years on it herself, and it's brilliant and flawed and wonderful and and and, and not well known. I can already tell from this description we're just not going to have enough time to cover every part of this book in our in our brief conversation. But but I mean, based on that almost encyclopedic description you just gave. I, is is there one part of the book maybe you could pick as as an example for something that that this book taught you and and I mean you say it's just had such a profound impact on your life so what is I guess one of those impacts well she starts out by examining the history of the world and uh she she crosses one of the reasons why she's not well known and she's not connected to anything is because she she really went all over the place um and didn't uh, have a college to to uh uh provide her with that kind of uh uh, audience that she really deserved. Now, the book is printed in Germany and other places, so there are people around the world who know about her, but not so much in this country. Uh, as an independent scholar, um, she really did all this on her own. And and, and the history, it, it, it's a combination, as this uh, blurb says, it, it, it goes all over the place. talks about her personal history of being a Catholic writer, uh, religious, devotional almost, a teacher, uh, and then an avalanche took her out smashed her, broke her back, smashed her into a tree, and she had time to read, and she started reading Heidegger and philosophy, and so she started to understand the world. She began to realize that our history uh, as a Western civilization was deeply flawed, uh, and she goes into, like, the Greek language problem, which I thought was fascinating. One of, one of the things that was really important for me, realizing that the Greeks took the Phoenician alphabet and molded their language to a different alphabet. So it no longer was tied to the culture. It was no longer symbolic. It was no longer the glyphs like we have in Chinese and, and Japanese uh, and many other languages. Instead, it was this abstract sound. So it allowed people to go into abstract thinking. And we get this whole idea of Plato and Aristotle that, you know, everything is these ideals, that there's ideal things that are beyond uh, the physical, that are metaphysical. And it allowed us to go deep into rational thought. And we have this whole scientific method that is marvelous, but deeply flawed because it's incomplete, which is why I'm such a fan these days of uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who I got to be on a panel with just last night uh, talking about kinship. But uh, she's a scientist, a botanist, a really well-respected teacher, and at the same time is an indigenous elder. So what Dolores pointed us towards was an understanding of history. I think that was maybe the most important thing. Where we went wrong, where uh, we diverged from our connection to the natural world and went off on a tangent that has, has gotten us really far, has taught us a lot, made us really powerful, but at the same time has impoverished us spiritually. Um, we, we, we really have lost our connection to the earth, as everybody has realized uh, from Rachel Carson on. And uh, it's been... That understanding, she, she brings out, she explains it, she tells you about the history, which is amazing, uh, and then she tells you about societies that actually controlled it, about how Taoist and uh, Shintoism and Confucianism in China and in Japan allowed them to decide not to do some things. They, they outlawed, they, they invented uh, um, uh, uh, gunpowder and then outlawed it in Japan for 100 years. Uh, I, I, there was a lot of things that she showed that indigenous people had pathways that allowed them to not overpopulate, pathways that allowed them to protect the resources that they were using. Um, 
she had a great phrase, which I love, called reciprocal appropriation. So we appropriate things. We appropriate a lot of things in the natural world. But it needs to be reciprocal. We need to give back. And that's what we don't do. We take and we don't give back. I, I like to think of Thanksgiving as really a thanks-taking um, <laughs> because we, we've taken so much and we rarely give back. I mean, I love to give thanks and it's important. But at the same time, we have to realize that. But what's so wonderful about Dolores' book is that not only does she give you the, the, an outline of what went wrong and some ideas of maybe people who had ideas on, 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 and did better than, than others, but then she gives you seven pathways that she suggests on how to move forward in the world. And one of them is bardic poetry. And I'm a poet. And so when I learned that bardic poetry could be a major avenue for bringing us back into connection with the world, I was in heaven. Well, how, how is poetry an avenue to do that? And what specifically is bardic poetry? Yeah, so bard. A bard is a, throughout history, cultures always had a bard, uh, someone who spoke the story, told the story of the people, of the place. And uh, every culture has different ones. Homer was a, a bard. And these bards are really people who speak for place, speak for the world around them, speak for the human actions. Oftentimes the bards were corollaries to the aristocracy and they would tell of the exploits, uh, like Virgil telling about the exploits uh, or, or glorifying the empire. But bardic poetry is poetry that isn't no, so much necessarily telling us about yourself. It's about looking at the world really closely and understanding, which what Dolores would like to say was, the, the, the natural world offers us the opportunity to understand rather than we discover something, which is our hubris sometimes. Uh, we think we found uh, America. We discovered something. And really what it is is nature has given us the opportunity to find. And that's a really different way of looking, uh, a stance towards the world. So Dolores changed my whole, you know, I came from a Roman Catholic background. I studied to be a Roman Catholic priest for seven years. So I had a, a grounding in the spiritual world, but I'd kind of rejected the power games that went on in, in organized religion. So Dolores gave me a way in the natural world to reconnect, to walk out into the world, to, 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 to make a cathedral of my hikes into Bear Creek, that uh, Bear Creek is our cathedral here in Telluride. And... And then, because I was involved with mushrooms, and ritual is so important, it takes us outside of our rational mind. That's what's so powerful about ritual. And, uh, 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 and, and ritual doesn't have to be serious and sacred and have to be all this kind of difficult stuff. I was able to be the thaumaturge, the miracle worker of the mushroom festival, and create a parade, which is a ritual, where we take on the, the, the clothing, the look of a different kingdom. It isn't our kingdom. It's, it's not even our, a, a, sim, a similar species or genus. It's, it's an entirely different kingdom. And we go into that kingdom and we, we, we enjoy it, we celebrate it, we laugh, we have a great time, we parade up and down Main Street. That is ritual. And that's the kind of ritual, joyous ritual, that I learned from Dolores. Listeners, if you're just joining us, my guest right now is Art Good Times discussing what he has selected as his sacred text. Tonight, for Off the Record, we are speaking about sacred texts, what texts people consider sacred, whether the Bible, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, whatever it is. Art's selection is a book, Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, Rapture of the Deep, Concerning Deep Ecology and Celebrating Life by Dolores LaChapelle. Art, you mentioned earlier um, that another insight that came from this book was that 
our approach to science, while powerful, is also, you said, um, deeply flawed. And I'm wondering if you can just dive into that a bit more. What is what is the flaw that you and, and Dolores, it sounds like, see in the scientific method we've developed? Well, let's look at our world. Let's stand back and take a look. And that's what she does in the beginning of this book. She stands back and takes a look at where we are, where we've come, how uh, there are... When I was born, uh, there were 2.9 million people in the world. Billion? Billion people in the world. And now there's like 7.9 billion people. That's in my one lifetime. Uh, you know, we don't talk about that enough to understand. It's not so much the climate changing. Climate always changes. But what is changing is that we are inhabiting every possible niche, and we're using up resources, and we're taking and not giving back. So if there's one thing, I would say it's that we take and we don't give back. And that's the problem with our scientific method is we take things and we don't know or, we, or we've lost the learning of how to take back. What I love about Robin Wall Kimmerer uh, with braiding sweetgrass is that she understands the power of science. She's a definite scientist. She loves the rational mind and she appreciates all the wonders it's brought us. But she also is an indigenous elder and she understands that we need to respect the body. We need to be embodied. We need to understand how to give back to the natural world. And so uh, Dolores helped me balance out my love of science. Uh, I mean, I used to read poetry books all the time. Now I read Scientific American Science News. It's fascinating. It's the most fascinating thing happening. There is so much going on. And at the same time, I have a spiritual life. I go out into Thunder Trails where I live and go hiking and look at the moss. I, I got down on my knees and poured some water on moss. Have you ever done that? Poured water on moss? No. And, and you watch it turn from brown to green and come alive. It's the most amazing thing to do. Mm. Um, you mentioned it took you six years to read this book. How old were you when you were reading it? Oh, I was in my 30s. I met Dolores at an Earth First gathering that I helped set up on the Uncompahgre Plateau. I was Earth First poetry editor for 10 years. Radical environmentalist. Our, our motto was no compromise in defense of Mother Earth, which is great. Uh, but what it means is if you don't agree with me, I'm going to line you up and shoot you. You know, it, it's, it's not a way to work with people. It's a way to make people become aware. And so uh, as a, a young, a youthful and, and a warrior society, Earth First was valuable. And it still is. But that is not the way to make change. The way to make change is to dig into the radical center, I like to call it. That's why I became a commissioner, uh, because I was able to make real change. Did I change the world? No. Did I make much change? No. Did I start change? Yes. Mm. Some people listening to this might not have six years to spare to read a book that they, it sounds encyclopedic in the deepest sense of the word, but is there one or two pieces of advice or knowledge or practice or wisdom that you think you could pass on to listeners that you've garnered from this book that you think would help them in their own lives? Yeah. You know, I, I, I love to chant. I have a death chant that I sing all the time whenever I kill something and I know I'm going to sing it when I die. I, I, chanting is really important. Drumming is really important. Um, diving into understanding, looking at the world closely, and then writing or painting or dancing or acting it. So all of the arts, the humanities, that's, that's where, you know, we, we talk about STEM, but it's really STEAM. And that's the real important thing. You have to have the arts to modify our souls. And so I would recommend people, no matter what they're doing, have an art have something that you use that transforms, that you're able to make the change from your rational mind to your creative self. Art Good Times, his sacred text of choice is Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, Rapture of the Deep, Concerning Deep Ecology and Celebrating Life by Dolores LaChapelle. Art, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. I love Kodo. 
That was Art Good Times in a pre-recorded interview we did prior to this show. So grateful, Art, for you making time to do that and, and talk in only the way that you can. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, I'm Matt Hoysh from the Kodo News team. This is Off the Record. This hour has been dedicated um, to sacred texts, to texts, whether it's a song, a poem, a piece of scripture, a book, texts that we turn to that, that help us get through life, that give us life um, when we really need it. When I was um, preparing this show, I was, I was thinking a lot about what my sacred text of choice would be. And <laughs> a lot of choices, of course. There were a lot of things that popped into my mind. Um, but one of the, the, the pertinent ones um, that popped up, it's not really a text. It's, it's actually a quote, but I first encountered it as a text, so I think it, it's okay. Um, when I was growing up, I went to, went to Jewish summer camp, and we had prayer books that we used when we did religious stuff. Um, and there was uh, quotes like strewn throughout the the prayer books and, and little bits that would that would inspire you as you were in the midst of of the services. Um, and there was one that I encountered. I, I saw this I think when I was like twelve. Like this was a while ago, and it's it's literally just stuck with me in one way or another ever since. And it was um, it was about the pianist Arthur Schnabel, who apparently so the story goes was once asked how he played piano notes produce such beautiful music and the story goes he responded the notes i handle no better than many pianists but the pauses between the notes that is where the art resides and uh that stuck with me for much of my life that's beautiful matt hoish Hi, everybody. <laughs> I'm just going to bomb in and say that this is Emily Sky Robinson here on uh, KOTO Telluride on the Sacred Text Show. And I'm sitting here with Matt. And that's amazing. Actually, as a musician, um, so much of what we do, so much of what is expert really in music is the space. Um, it's what you don't do. That's just as important and often even more important than um, what you feel <laughs> what you fill the void with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I read a, I read a book one time, a woman who I know who's a sculptor in the San Luis Valley in Alamosa. And she talked about finding the um, form within, um, within the block of stone that she mm -hmm. would work with. And literally her art was all about taking away. That was it. It's all about what you take away. And so I think a lot about that sometimes when I'm songwriting. To me, it's a metaphor that makes a ton of sense. I'll put a couple pages down of, of stuff, of ideas, of character, of, of just like images. And then all I'll do is just sculpt something out of that. And uh, I think some of the best songs in the world and poems um, are ones that we've um, that we've like carved down to their bare essence. Mm. <laughs> I want to say for the record, I had, I had a great transition lined up there. I was going to tell the whole story. And oh, then I, I said, bombed and it. If, no, you, you did great. You did. No, no, we didn't rehearse this. And then I was going to say, and and my next guest is a master of pauses, <laughs> local musician, Emily Scott. And it was, it was, I literally, I practiced, I'm not lying. I practiced this in my head alone. So you can do, why don't you do that? Like, the thing is, Matt, you know me. If you put a microphone in front of me and you put me live on the air, I'll just start talking. I'm so sorry. Maybe I subconsciously should, did this. Should we? let you introduce me. No, no, me. no. We're, we're just going with, it's live radio. Live. Um, we're closing the show, folks, with local musician mm. Emily Scott Robinson um, with music as, yeah. as a sacred text, songwriting as a sacred text. Emily, anyone who's listened to your songs know that um, 
well, you have a knack for songwriting. You have a knack for telling stories in verse to melody. Um, how did you turn to songwriting? How did you get into songwriting, into this being a way that you process the world? I think that I got into it the way a lot of people get into it. And uh, it's just that I loved songs and I loved stories so much. They moved me so much or they um, provided a soundtrack to my life and I wanted to be able to do that. I think that there's this great quote that I remember in an interview from Ira Glass. He was interviewed by Dax Shepard, an armchair expert. So it was a very like hilarious interview um, because Ira is so serious and Dax is just like a puppy, um, a nice puppy, but like, so it was funny, but he, Ira Glass was very seriously talking about how when you first start making art, you start making art because you love, you love it and you just want to be able to imitate it. And when you first begin, your taste is like so, your taste is like super high, but what you're putting out is just so <laughs> beginner level. And so you have to live as an artist with this like um, difference between what you're making and what you want to be making, what your heroes are making, right? And so, and it just takes time. So um, I, I don't know, I just loved songs. <laughs> I loved writing. Um, I loved words and I first loved singing and realized that I could, um, that I could sing and I loved performance. And then, um, I didn't start writing songs until I very seriously, until I was in like 26, 27. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I can say for a fact now you write songs that that gap you mentioned, you're closing that gap very significantly. Thanks. Emily just released a record. One of those songs, NPR, number 19 top song of 2021 by NPR, Let Em Burn on that album, American Siren. A lot of other good songs there too. But we're Thanks. not going to dwell on that too much because you came here for a different song. That's true. Um, <laughs> and, and frankly, it's a song that is very close to me personally. And I, I really hope listeners that um, it can be close to you. It's a song that you wrote for a production of Macbeth we did this yeah. past summer. And I'm wondering if you can talk about it a bit. Um, so this summer was so special. We did uh, Macbeth with Telluride Theater and um, Colin Sullivan, the director of the show, um, asked if I would write songs for the witches. Um, and we decided to kind of turn the witches into these siren-like characters um, and to make them sing because they really already speak in verse and rhyme. Um, and, and they, um, they sort of, well, they are encanting through the whole show and, you know, encanting can, cantar, um, is like the root of that in Latin is to sing. And so, um, uh, so I, I wrote a bunch of songs for the witches and, the funny thing about Macbeth, I don't know how you feel about the ending, Banquo, um, <laughs> but it, the funny thing is that Macbeth, as a tragedy, sort of ends up in this big final scene where everyone's in the room and they're like tying up loose ends all in one go, which is like something that, you know, feels a little odd as an ending. So we wanted there to be an epilogue, essentially, where all the witches come out and also like Lady Macbeth and the crone and Lady Macduff where all of the women in the show come out and they provide kind of this epilogue another note on the future um of of mankind in this show because at the end like Malcolm aka Julia Caulfield <laughs> news director. our other crack news our news director here at Kodo um sort of says 
okay, now it's over and we'll bring peace to the land and there won't be any more killing. And like, we know from history that there's going to be more killing (laughs) and that there's going to be more cycles of life and death and of war and of peace. And so, um, Colin and I sat down to talk about this song. Um, I was procrastinating. We were like in rehearsals for the show and I still had not written this song. (laughs) And I was like, he's like, we need a song for the end. We need a song for the ending. I kind of want it to be a little bit more uplifting or positive. And I had heard about this amazing collection of texts called the Carmina Gedelica. I was taking a class on Celtic shamanism with this amazing teacher in like Minnesota. And he referred to the Carmina Gedelica, which is a collection of, of like prayers and uh, incantations and pieces of advice and wisdom texts um, that were collected all through like Scotland and the Highlands um, in like all through like the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. It's a super interesting collection of texts because they have a lot of like They capture the time where there were a lot of like pagan and shamanic beliefs and Celtic beliefs transitioning over to Christianity. Um, And so we, I got a copy of that book and we just flipped through it and started getting ideas. Um, And we actually wrote the song together and it was really, really fun because there's like amazing, there's like these amazing blessings in this book. Things that say like, may you have the health of horses and heroes and stuff like that. It's like pretty epic Celtic language and it's very funny in Old English and it's it's just so inspiring. Like I could just crack open this book and immediately get song ideas. Okay, so that is how this song came to life. Um, And um, it's really really the women in the play um, saying and the witches saying, there will be more cycles of death as long as as long as these men are involved in in this situation there's going to be more bids for power there's going to be more turnover there's going to be more blood there's going to be new life there's going to be peace again and then it's all going to repeat so the cycles of men are like the cycles of moons they just go through um and so we wanted to capture this sort of deeper wisdom in this song so that's where it came from Well, I can think of no better bookend to this show about sacred texts um, than this song, which which I absolutely adore. And I would be honored if you can play it. Thank you. I want to clarify that when I wrote this song, it actually has a three-part harmony. I can't achieve the three-part harmony on my own. And <laughs> my other singers can't be in the studio tonight. Um, and so I am hoping to record this song uh, sometime soon and put it out and release it. Um, This is of Men and Moons. What's to tell of men and moons As January's melt to June's As shadows lengthen afternoons Rising, falling Men and moons Life will come and life will go With nothing at the end to show For sound and fury rivers flood To wash the field of battle's blood Through Lying oaths and hollow 
speech and steal that pierces each to each. Protect the fairies, shield the crown, and plant our hearts in sacred ground. Aid my voice and aid my love. Turn mine eyes to stars above. Guard my journey through the night and keep for me a guiding light. We're bound by gravity of joyful sound. Feed the hearth and feed the earth. Hope must stand on every word. What's the tale of men and moons as January's melt to June's as shadows lengthen afternoons? Rising, falling, men and moons Waxing, waning, men and moons Rising, falling, men and Emily, Scott, Robinson, Men and Moons. Emily, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Her album, again, American Siren. Look it up. Listeners, this is the end of Off the Record. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope that if you have a sacred text that you have in your life, maybe this is the time to turn to it. It's the best part about sacred texts. You can always find something in them, no matter what. We'll see you next week for Off the Record, tomorrow night for news. This is KOTO Telluride. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. Opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests. Join us again next week for another installment. And in the meantime, drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas. Off the